The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this morning I'd like to talk about the perfection of effort. It's the fifth of the ten perfections that are taught in Buddhism. And perfection is a very lofty term. But um, there are ten qualities of character that uh, can be developed and strengthened. And as they become strengthened, they support uh, the practice of meditation, the practice of Buddhism. And what's beautiful about these is that um, it's said that they, these ten qualities uh, uh, support, give fuel or give strength to both the cultivation of both the path to liberation and the path to compassion. Both our ability to be com- of com- compassionate service to others are supported by these things. And so is our path to freedom from suffering, liberation. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, so there are uh, these ten, and they are, uh, gener- starts with generosity, as it does in many times in Buddhism, that so many uh, opportunities where the Buddha had to teach about the beginning of a list or beginning of practice or beginning of a path, he begins with uh, the importance of generosity. It's like the foundation. And then uh, following that, as foundational, is the importance of ethical integrity or virtue. And there's going to be no liberation and no real compassionate service to the world without uh, having some strong sense of ethical um, uh, integrity and virtue within, within oneself. And then um, uh, the character trait of being able to let go is considered very helpful. And then there's wisdom to develop wise understanding. And then there's a factor for today, which is effort or energy. And when a person applies effort and energy, it's good to be patient. And so that's the sixth, that's the sixth one. The next time, next month, I'll talk about that. And then, um, and then after that comes uh, truthfulness. The ability to be truthful is important both for liberation and for compassion. And then um, the ability to be resolved, to, um, to have determination is also a very important quality. And then loving kindness is the ninth, and equanimity the tenth. So today is um, perfection of effort. I think it's a beautiful quality, though some people, when they encounter Buddha, this idea of making effort that Buddhism talks about, um, they're already exhausted, and, <laughs> and uh, it just seems like too much. I mean, they came to Buddhism for stress reduction, not to make effort. And, um, and also, uh, when they, people hear effort, um, it ties in with all kinds of uh, ideas, associations people have with making effort that get in the way of making wholesome or healthy effort. So there could be uh, ideas of success and failure expectations, ideas that we have that I'm, you know, I can't, that effort is hard and it entails something that's difficult and I can't do anything difficult, especially when you talk about spiritual practice. I mean, I'm not going to be a, a Buddha or a Christ or something like that. I'm just making effort. It's, here they go again, these Buddhists, you know, just telling me, you know, I should do something and telling me that I'm not good enough the way I am. And I have to somehow change myself by making effort. And that's a, it's not uncommon for people to complain to me that these Buddhisms, you know, Buddhism doesn't seem to accept me the way I am. I want to be accepted the way I am. 
And, um, and that's okay, I suppose, but depending, depending how you are. <laughs> There's a very famous quote of Suzuki Roshi that goes, uh, he, apparently he told this to someone, or at least supposed to have told someone, he said um, to her, um, you're perfect just the way you are. And then he was a long pause. And there's room for improvement. <laughs> and there's something very profound about holding both of those together. But there is no Buddhism without some kind of effort. Because if it's just a matter of accepting you as you are, and how you are is you're suffering a lot. So the idea is to accept yourself. You know, I'm just here to accept my suffering. I'm here in this world to accept things as they completely are. And so I'm just neurotically suffering. So I just continue doing so. And that's what Buddhism has to teach. It's not that way at all. Uh, Buddhism does involve a change, uh, changing something, changing business as usual. And so the, uh, in order for things to change, we have to make some effort. We have to, or some choice, do things differently than how we did it in the past. So if, uh, if a person is driven um, by ambition and greed and they're working 80 hours a week, they're stressed out, they're, taking, they're cheating, they're taking advantage of other people because they're just trying to get money and get further advancing, and kind of their family's falling apart, you don't tell them to accept things as they are without some subtle explanation of that this means that um, something different than just kind of continue as business as usual. There has to be some change involved. And uh, otherwise, there's no hope for that person. You, know, you, you, don't, want, you don't want a warmonger to just continue fighting war. They come to Buddhism, they say, oh, accept things as they are, and let's continue fighting the war. Um, that doesn't work so well. There has to be some change. So what's the change that's being asked of us in Buddhism? And the change that's being asked is to change our life, make a decision in our life to switch our life away from living those ways that cause suffering, that add suffering, both to ourselves and to others. And, um, and that intention to live a life that doesn't cause suffering is a beautiful intention. That itself doesn't involve any action or effort, but it's a beautiful wish, it's an aspiration that I think that, I hope, that exists in every heart, that uh, once we get sensitive to the suffering in the world, that the heart's, the heartfelt wish is to try to make a difference and alleviate, come to an end, bring to an end um, suffering in ourselves and suffering around us. And so it entails making some choice then, if you want to act on that intention, some choice to do things differently than business as usual. And how different does it have to be? Does it, and, um, and this is where I'm fond of this. I mean, it could be very different. It could be that uh, it could be quite dramatic. The difference between night and day. And some people hear Buddhism and they cha- right, right away they change their life dramatically. I've known people have given up their job um, and gone off and become monastics. That's pretty big, you know, to make that change. And known people who haven't changed much, but um, but just a little bit. Maybe they started sitting every day for 20 minutes. Or they tar- started paying attention to their speech and tried to speak in, with more integrity as they had conversations with people. 
Maybe these are considered rel- relatively small compared to becoming a monastic, but there are changes that people make. And so I'm fond of this um, analogy of you know, two parallel lines will never meet unless you take one of them uh, and if you take one of them and well they never meet but if you take one of them and nudge it a little bit away from the other just a teeny bit maybe imperceptibly at first then because of the they're heading slightly different directions over time as the line goes further and further out they veer away from each other and we give enough time the distance becomes immense and so if we are on a particular trajectory in our life and we nudge it, nudge our life to a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left, um, but sustain that new trajectory, then over, over time, the difference becomes big. Though it might not seem so big the first week, the first month, or even the first year. But over five years, the difference could be huge. The five years, the difference between practicing ethical speech could be huge uh, compared to not doing so. Um, meditating half an hour every day over f- five years could be a huge difference in your life. Maybe the first day, the difference is not that great. And it's hard sometimes to have faith that these small steps can make a difference, but they can make a difference over time. Some people I know, like I have done, complain and say, well, five years, I mean, that's, you know, that's so far in the future. You know, I can't think that far in the future and plan, that, that plan ahead, you know, my spiritual life five years from now. And then I looked back, and five years in the past was yesterday. It went so fast. And uh, when I think of that, then I think, well, yes, yeah, it's, it's worthwhile then to kind of make a difference here. Some people make small differences in their life. That's what they can do or want to do. Move that line, the trajectory a little bit, and some people move it in big ways. Why is it different for different people? Um, there's many, many factors involved. Uh, sometimes the people who make the big difference are the ones who suffer the most. And um, it's been pointed out that some of the great uh, religious figures in history um, uh, lost a parent when they were children. The Buddha's mother died when he was seven days old. Um, and there's other people as well. Uh, the famous Zen master Dogen, his mother died, I think, when he was seven, eight or something. And um, so that's, that's a, you know, a big impact on a young psyche. And so sometimes when the suffering is great, people, I have to do something. Nothing else makes sense. And so they, sometimes people make big changes. Uh, uh, that's one reason why there can be a difference. Uh, some people um, find that they have responsibilities in their lives that they are committed to, and it's hard to make big, dramatic changes. And so they make small ones and rely on small changes in the, over the long term. And I've, I've known Buddhist practitioners who've chosen the small change, but persisted over time, and over time they've been transformed. I've known people who've made dramatic changes and, you know, uh, practical changes in their life, but those dramatic changes didn't result in many, much transformation. <laughs> uh, you don't know which, which is going to be. Um, you know, it depends a lot on the sincerity of your effort and what you actually do, not necessarily whether you become a monastic or not. So um, we have in Buddhism the image of the Buddha here. Here we have a statue at IMC next to me here of the Buddha sitting in meditation. And that's a pretty common image uh, that people have of Buddhism, the meditating Buddha. And uh, he's a peaceful, peaceful fellow who's kind of, 
you know, his eyes are open in the usual statues, so he's somehow connected to the world, it said, but his eyes are downcast and kind of relaxed and soft, and, and so he's not caught in the world or preoccupied with the world, but he's not disconnected from it either if the eyes were closed. And he's settled and centered on himself, relaxed, um, and, um, and the idea of a peaceful, someone uh, who's quite peaceful. And so it might seem that Buddhism, therefore, emphasizes a certain passivity. Um, and, uh, and when Buddhist teachers do talk about uh, practice relaxation, practice acceptance, are we okay out there? Okay. Out there? okay. Um, practice acceptance, then um, um, it can seem to emphasize this kind of passive side of Buddhism. You're not supposed to do much and just accept things as they are. Another image that's, um, that Buddhism provides of the Buddha, which is maybe not as well known, but uh, I think is quite interesting as a contrast to this one, is that uh, soon after the Buddha uh, left his lay life, left the palace, and went off to become a renunciant, a seeker, in search for spiritual liberation, uh, he was walking through the streets of one of the capitals of the country in India in those times, and um, as a wandering monk. And the local king saw him. And the local king was so impressed by his bearing, by how he was walking down the street, the king thought, this person is of noble birth. This person is of royal birth. And went out and, and or somehow called the Buddha in, the Buddha-to-be, he wasn't a Buddha yet, called him into the palace or went to talk to him and said, you clearly have a noble bearing, clearly have royal bearing. Uh, why don't you stay here with me and, um, and uh, I'll make you my successor. Well, you know. So, you know, I don't know if this true story is true, uh, but uh, <clears throat> the point being, and partly it was an idea that the Buddha even was offered a kingship, and he turned, turned that down. You know, if you get offered... You know, how many of you would turn down the winning and get a winning ticket for the California lottery? Uh, would you? No? <laughs> I know people who would. Because their life are better off without it. Or power, or something. So it's an image of, you know, the Buddha turned away from that kind of worldly temptation. The... Um, but, the, but the, uh, what I'm calling forth this image now is the image of the, that somehow he was walking down the street with a kind of bearing and presence that got the attention of a, of a monarch. That's not, I, I, in my mind at least, that's not the, uh, the uh, image of someone who is, um, you know, passive. It's an image of someone who appears has some kind of strength and nobility and power in how they are walking down the street. That's how it is for me. And that would get the attention of a king, because they're interested in power. And in fact, the word for uh, energy here, effort, is virya. And virya comes from the root, uh, Sanskrit word vira, which means hero, hero. And so the association of effort or energy is, in Buddhism, is heroic effort. And um, uh, so again, the image of, you know, there is a, a goal or a peace in Buddhism, but the goal, the, the means to that goal, sometimes associated with making heroic effort. This is not for the lazy Buddhism. It's not for, it's not for bedside Buddhists. 
uh, or nightstand Buddhists it's called. Nightstand Buddhists just read a lot. And you know, one of those ways to nudge your trajectory slightly off where you're going is to read less books on Buddhism and meditate more. You know, so like one, one guideline is, um, you know, if maybe you should, you know, it's an interesting guideline. Maybe you should meditate more, at least as much as you read. If you're reading a lot of books on Buddhism, at least as much as you read. Or maybe you should meditate um, as much as you use the computer for entertainment. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> now the stakes are high. <laughs> the, um, so, you know, heroic effort. And some people need heroic effort if they're going to make a difference in their life. There are people who are deeply entrenched in their attachments, their addictions. Probably all of us know someone who has a, uh, some kind of addiction problem. Uh, alcohol or drugs or all kinds of things people are addicted to. And uh, it's really hard to break the patterns of addiction. And it takes a certain degree of courage and maybe even heroism to be able to make that big switch, that big change. And um, Or there's, uh, there's, there's the... Uh, it takes courage to overcome fear. And some people I know, especially people who are young, um, uh, there's the fear of doing something which is not condoned by one's family or one's society. Uh, I know that a lot of people, when I was young, went to Asia to practice Buddhism, and they brought with them their parents. Uh, in the sense that, you know, my parents don't approve of this. I'm supposed to be going to college. I'm supposed to be, you know, following the career choice of my parents or whatever. And I'm doing something which my parents don't approve of. And, and so there's a fear of approval, fear of acceptance, all kinds of, you know, fear of something. And it takes a certain kind of, uh, for some people, courage and heroism to overcome the fear that can be connected to changing and transforming one's life in a different direction. Um, it could also take and this is a paradox of effort, it could take a lot of courage, a lot of heroism, to energetically, persistently, dedicatedly, stay relaxed. Because the forces of tension are so strong, the forces of fear, the forces of um, greed or hate are so strong in us. Greed, hate, greed and hate and fear are all things that make us tense. And to overcome those forces and stay relaxed sometimes can take a lot of effort. And, and I think it's beautiful because if the focus is on being relaxed, you're protected from the effort being stressful. Because if you can't, you can't str- stressfully try to relax. That doesn't work, right? But it can take a lot of effort, a certain kind of effort, and a lot of persistence, and I, I, I'd suggest sometimes courage, to be willing to relax and stay relaxed. And one of the very interesting exercises to do is to doubt the value or the importance of being stressed or being tense. Most people don't stop and look at it and question it and doubt it. Is it really necessary? Why do I feel it's so important to be worried now or so important to be caught up in this or so important to be... 
um, and you know, it's one thing when you're relaxed to say, well, you know, who needs heroic efforts? But when you're up against your belief systems that are operating consciously or unconsciously, that get you kind of contracted, they get you deeply afraid or worried or anxious. What are those belief systems? What is really going on for you? What's the deeper underlying psychological structures of your mind that lead to that kind of behavior? Is it really necessary? Can you really question it deeply? And if you can question it, can you consider that it's not necessary? And if it's not necessary, what would it take for you to overcome that deep psychological conditioning that leads to stress and all the different forms it has? It's a high, it's a high challenge, I think, that Buddhism offers. And, uh, and the time that you're going to kind of maybe appreciate the high challenge is the times when you're most stressed. Because that's when the mind's going to scream sometimes, no way am I going to question this. No way am I going to doubt the value of being stressed. Sometimes people don't. People are so, you know, they want, they want, they want. One of, my, one of the very interesting justifications for worry that I've heard is that um, in some families, apparently, um, where they worry, anxiety is kind of like embedded in the family pattern, uh, the way that you show love, that you care for other people in the family is by worrying. And so it's important to worry, to show you your care. And if you don't worry, that means you don't care. But is it possible to care without worrying? I believe it is. So then it's hard because the family, you know, the whole family system was built around a certain pattern. It's hard to let go of that. So to make a lot of effort to relax, to make a lot, a lot of efforts to let go of strain and stress and holding on as a way of, and that's a self, it's, it's a way of, with that kind of focus, the effort itself uh, is protected from strain and effort, strain and effort. So in looking at effort, there are two different important areas. There's what, the, what effort we make and how we make effort. So what effort we make? Uh, the efforts we make, the efforts we make, the endeavors, the things we actually do and put effort into doing, um, it makes a difference what we do. If you use a lot of mindfulness, develop your mindfulness, and use a lot of mindfulness to steal from your neighbors, that will have a very different effect psychologically on you if you use all the mindfulness you developed to help your neighbors, to support them. You know, two different things you can do. That's kind of dramatic, right? But, um, but there's other things, you know. So if you use your time, so let's say you meditate and you get really calm and settled and open and relaxed. This is great, you say. That was wonderful. Thank you. That was what that. And they say, well, what, what, what would be good to do now? Well, let's go watch three hours of television. I mean, that's a choice. And you can watch television in a relaxed way. That's, that's a pretty good thing, right? I mean, if you're going to watch television, be relaxed. <clears throat> and be open, take it in properly, receptive to the full impact of the show. And <laughs> don't have any obscurations in your mind, that distractions, worries that bother you, and just take it all in. When, when you go see the movie with Dharma Friends next, next week, <laughs> meditate first so you can really appreciate it. <clears throat> but um, the, um, 
but you know, you have that wonderful state of wonderful state. <clears throat> maybe you're maybe have a very different effect if if you use that state that you've attained, uh, with some degree of relaxation. And this is the time maybe to go visit that neighbor who's having a hard time. Maybe he's in bed, sick, or something. And this is the time maybe to call someone and have a difficult conversation with you. You need to have the conversation. Maybe this is the time to work on your taxes you know, because you had a good, good space for it. So what we do makes a difference. And so in the Buddhist practice as well, what we do is, is important. And so in, Buddhism involves deciding what to do. I mean, doing something. And um, so we could do things that cultivate generosity. We could do things that cultivate uh, ethical integrity. We could do things that help us with letting go in useful ways. We can do things to develop wisdom. We can do things to develop our energy or effort. So that's some of the things we could do. So you can consider, what, can, what in my life can I do that can cultivate my capacity for generosity if generosity is understood to be a support for this path? <clears throat> what can I do to cultivate ethical integrity if that's an important part of this? That's some things you can do. Uh, or you can look, you know, my, my goal in life is to become free of suffering, to become liberated, to become freer than I am now. So what are the things I can do to support that to happen? And perhaps meditation has a role. Perhaps letting go more in your life has a role. Perhaps reading some of those Dharma books is important. Coming to hear talks. There's many things you can do that would support you in the choice you've made, the life direction you want to go. And there's a whole, whole big repertoire of things a person can do to support them along the Buddhist path. And uh, different times we do different things. Sometimes people like to put together kind of a package. And so different uh, times of the day or different days, or they do different aspects of this. But without doing something, um, there's no Buddhist path. The path only exists in the doing. If you come to IMC and you look for the Buddhist path, you will not find it. You can look around in the cupboards. <laughs> you can look under the, you know, in the closets, and you know, you say, well, it doesn't exist here. You can try to listen ever so carefully to Gil's Dharma talks, and you will not find the Buddhist path in Gil's Dharma talks. It doesn't exist there. The only place it exists is in you, in the person who walks the path, who does it. So it involves some doing, some walking. So there's what you do. There's doing something. <clears throat> But then, as important in what you do, is how you do it. The how you do it is very important. The first question, maybe, the, maybe it was the second question, anyway. Um, uh, one of the first questions, the real questions I asked uh, my first Zen teacher, <clears throat> so I walked up to him in the hallway, in the temple, and I said, um, you know, I'm interested in all this Zen stuff, but uh, what's the right effort with which to practice Zen meditation? And uh, he looked at me and responded very clearly, directly, said, who's making the effort? And I was 21 years old and I didn't have a clue what he was saying, but, uh, but I think it was, it, was a, it was a great answer. Who's making the effort? And who's making effort has different connotations, different do different things with that question. One of the questions is uh, to look at when we make effort, what are all the images, self-images, self-representations we have? 
ideas we have about who we are when we're making effort. We can have a lot of self-limiting ideas about who we are that are subconsciously or connected to how we make effort. There are people who make effort and they carry with them in the background this idea that um, uh, they can, only if they succeed will they get the brownie points, will they get a badge, you know, will they become a worthy person. And in order to become a worthy person, you have to succeed at things. And so they're looking at success and failure as being a really important part of their self-representation. And if that's, too, if, if that's too deeply kind of in the fabric of their self-understanding, that they have to be a successful person and avoid failure, it might uh, trip up the very effort they're doing. Uh, there might be a sense of obligation, especially when you come to religion. I mean, religion is such so oppressive, like Buddhism sometimes. If we, if we carry with it the idea of obligation, thou shalt be a spiritual person, thank you. And, uh, and you have to make the right effort to prove to the world that you're a, you know, a good spiritual person. And so this obligation, this, this, the shooting is so strong, there's no playfulness, there's no joy, there's no delight in doing, the, in doing it. But there's just all this sh- you know, kind of strong sense of should, obligation. And I know some people coming from religions where shooting has been a really important part of it, uh, bring that with them to Buddhism sometimes and feel like, you know, unless they do it and do it the right way, that somehow they'll, you know, I don't know, they'll, they'll, they'll fall to hell. Um, another thing people bring with it, how they do it, is sometimes is self-defeating attitudes. This is too hard. It's, uh, you know, the enlightenment of the Buddha. I mean, the Buddha is like, he's like, you know, that's like, you know, he sits on top of the huge spiritual mountain and, I'm in the Grand Canyon, the bottom. And, uh, you know, who am I? You know, it's so hard. It's, it's, it, the walls of that mountain are so steep, and I'm so weak and so incapable. And I know I should do this, but I guess I will. You know, but then it's kind of like half-hearted efforts, you know. And, um, and uh, you know, so the effort is half-hearted and doesn't really go anywhere. It's kind of like you walk up the mountain and it's more like you're walking up a sand dune and you take one step up and you slide down. And uh, so there can be a lot of self-defeating attitudes that are enmeshed with how people make effort. Some people um, bring with them in how they make effort a lot of strain. And they contract and they try really hard. And when you strain and try really hard, it doesn't work. So there's a famous story of... uh, of, in this story, it's, um, <clears throat> you, know, maybe, you know, these are kind of archetypical stories, so you'll maybe be, go along with the imagery, but there was, you know, an uh, arrogant, capable, aristocratic, spoiled <clears throat> man who came to the monastery. And he was very capable in things he did. And so he came and he came to the abbot and said, I'm here to become a monk and become enlightened. If I work really hard, how long will it take me to get enlightened? And the abbot said, oh, about 10 years. 10 years? But what if I really redouble my effort and make really a lot of effort? You're really going to... How long will it take then? Just full, courageous, heroic effort. Oh, the abbot said, in that case, it'll take 20 years. (laughs) 
And one of the interesting kind of aspects about effort, it's kind of sometimes spiritual effort, like in meditation, it's kind of like, you know, if you're in it for the long term, and you really understand that spiritual growth and development is, is generally a slow process. It's, you know, you generally you put yourself in for the long term. Then it's kind of like the marathon. If you run a marathon, you don't go all out the first hundred yards. You pace yourself. You, you're capable of giving 100% of your effort the first hundred yards. You're capable, but then you won't be able to do the marathon. So what you do is, I don't know what percentage, um, Genevieve, how, what percentage of effort do you give the first hundred yards that you could actually theoretically give? Five percent. So she runs marathons. So only, I mean, it, I mean, five percent? I mean, what a failure. <laughs> I mean, don't you, shouldn't you be trying hard and give it your best? <laughs> so the point is that uh, spiritual practice can be like that way too. That sometimes you don't want to give it your hundred percent effort because you just exhaust yourself, you burn yourself up. And I don't, I actually don't tell people to do 5%. I was hoping that she would say more. <laughs> but maybe, that, maybe that's what's wise, 5%. I usually tell people like on retreat, you know, what you really need is like 60% of your effort. Maybe it's not a marathon, but... So, 60% of your effort um, in order to, um, you know, but, but too many people try too hard and they try you know, 90 or 100% and they just get exhausted and, and tie themselves up in knots. So, um, so sometimes you want to make an eff- effort that's persistent and come back, but you don't want to make too much effort. Um, and so same thing with daily meditation practice or daily life. Uh, if you have this big should and try really super hard to be a super person, uh, it might actually be counterproductive. The other thing about effort is it really helps if you enjoy the effort. And for some people, the word effort and enjoyment are contradictory. Um, but uh, I hope that uh, you have some things you do in your life that you enjoy. Now, I, I know that uh, I, I go hang out sometimes at elementary school playgrounds and, um, because I have a kid in elementary school. And boy, is there a lot of energy expended in the playground. A lot of energy. I mean, I wouldn't be able to, I'd be exhausted if I was doing what they were doing very quickly. <laughs> And, um, but they seem to do fine. We can probably power the California energy shortage <laughs> if we plugged it into these kids, the playgrounds. And um, so they make a lot of energy. They use a lot of energy. And we could say that they're expending, they're making a lot of effort. But they're enjoying it. They're having fun. It's play for them. Can, there, can spiritual practice, can Buddhist practice, even meditation practice, have, have elements of play, enjoyment, as part of it? And I think that's actually very important, is how can we find a way? Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's not enjoyable. Absolutely not enjoyable. Sometimes me- Buddhist meditation practice is completely miserable to do. Um, because it involves a deep meeting with our demons sometimes a deep meeting with the things we're, we're most afraid of, or the deep meetings of our deep shadow, or whatever you want to call it. And if you're going to, sometimes you need heroic persistence to stay in the darkness, the dark night of the soul, to see, to see it through. So sometimes, you know, it's not, not pretty. But there's also times when it should be enjoyable. And, and, 
and bring a kind of delight and inspiration, even when it's difficult, there can be a certain kind of delight or joy. Wow, I have a path. There's this path there. There's a practice here. There's teachings. There's there's this beautiful thing to be engaged in. It's hard for me right now, but I'm so glad to be in it. So it can, but sometimes it can clearly, explicitly be playful. I've sometimes, uh, I mean, I mean, I don't want to want to tell you what I do sometimes, what I've done sometimes. But um, I mean, people, I mean, I mean, this is you know years ago. But there was a time when I, in order to kind of get into kind of following the breath. I pretended it was a pinball machine, you know, <laughs> and the, the breath was the ball, and my attention was the little flippers. <laughs> I didn't do it for long, but that was kind of fun. It got me into it, and then I could drop the play, that, you know, the little game. Or uh, sometimes the, the, uh, it feels like I'm surfing on a wave, and, and the breath is, is a wave, and I've caught the wave, and it just feels exquisite, and just kind of that gliding along. Um, but I think that for me, one of the things that, um, maybe it has to do with my character or something, but um, I just like making effort. I feel so lucky that I can do something, engage. Um, and so just the fact that I can, you know, practice and put my, my, my mind towards something, my heart towards something, my body energy towards something, and be engaged in something wholesome and healthy, that, just, that itself just makes me happy. Happy enough that sometimes I don't care so much about the results. It's the doing that is delightful. Um, the results can take care of themselves. And so that's one of the ways to trip yourself up, is to be too caught up in the results. Some sense of results and a goal is important, but it's really good to forget the goal and the results. And once, you, once, you have, once you're headed in the right direction, and just kind of get absorbed joyfully, happily, in the process of effort itself, engagement itself. And if we begin looking at how, to, if, how we're making effort and clarify, purify, clean up how we make effort, then we have much better luck with succeeding in, in what we do. And if what we do is a path of liberation, we'll much more likely walk that path effectively. If what we're doing is walking a path of compassion, being of service to the world, if we've clarified and purified how we do our work, it will be much more effective in being compassionate. And if you're walking a path that is both a path of compa- where compassion and liberation are, go hand in hand, then if you purify how you practice, the how, the effort, how, how you make the effort, then both liberation and compassion uh, will go much more smoothly and happily. So that's my um, big cheerleading talk for the year. (laughs) Hoping that you will be inspired to make effort. And that in doing so, you will be delighted and relax. So thank you all very much. (laughs) 